In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition, which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. My name is Hunter Mulcair and this is a podcast about psychology. Each episode we discuss a particular problem and talk about the psychological ins and outs of it and understand the psychological theories about it. And we also try and talk about how psychologists work with people with this particular problem and how we try and treat it. Today's episode is going to be all about chronic pain, which can be an incredibly disabling condition, both physically and mentally, as a problem that psychologists are routinely involved in the treatment of. As part of Psychology Week 2018, we decided that we would do a series of interviews with clinicians working in the field and hear about some of the work that they do. So today's episode will be me interviewing Dr. Kathleen Leach, who's a senior clinical psychologist who has experience working with pain patients. But before we get started with the show, I wanted to ask people if they like the show to rate it on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to the show, and if possible, to review the show. Rating and reviewing helps more people find the show and helps uh, everyone spread the word. You are also able to follow us on Twitter at Two Shrinks Pod, or you can email us at twoshrinkspod at gmail.com if you've got any questions or comments. And we've also got a website, twoshrinkspod.com. Very convenient. So we're going to get started. Kathleen, welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. Thanks so much for the invitation. It's very exciting. Yes, <laughs> thanks for coming on the show. So not many people, I think, really know about chronic pain. I certainly know when I was doing my clinical training in health psychology that I'd never heard of pain as a problem so I was wondering maybe we could just start there like set the scene what's chronic pain and how do people kind of end up with it yeah I think you make a really interesting point because certainly I did a clinical master's and I heard even less about chronic pain than you did in the health um, Mm -hmm. health course and so if we think from a professional point of view doctors and other specialists are often really not really clear about what is chronic pain. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes that can be an issue, which we can talk more about um, as we go through. So firstly, that, that knowledge base can be a bit of an issue. Yeah. So what it is, pain is pain, whether it's chronic or acute. It's an electrical signal that is from the brain. And it basically is communicating that there is some kind of threat or danger. The distinction between chronic and acute pain is that chronic pain is pain that extends beyond the normal course of recovery, mm-hmm. where generally that's considered three months, although I think that's rather arbitrary because some injuries, the normal course of recovery might be hours or days. And if your pain is extending beyond those hours or days, it would by already by definition to me be extending beyond the normal course of recovery and would be chronic. Yeah. Or you could imagine there's some conditions that you might have pain still a couple months later from surgery or something like that. Yeah. Cancer pain is another example where the pain is going to be an ongoing pain. It could also be managed in the similar kind of way as chronic pain. There's certain variants when we think about cancer pain compared to non-cancer chronic pain. So that the, the definition is, is pain that extends beyond the normal course of recovery. And you can imagine if you've ever had any pain, which all of us have, that if that pain just does not go away, that's where those multitude of kind of issues come up in terms of the degree of disability and the amount of impact that it has in every way in everyday life. Yeah, because the, the normal model of the way that I think we think about pain until you 
come across chronic pain or you get some kind of chronic pain problem is that you have an injury, the injury heals, the pain goes away. Yeah. And chronic pain is just very different to that, isn't it? Yeah. So that is how we would define acute pain is yeah. that you've had an injury and at the normal course of recovery, the pain will, will disappear. Usually, in fact, the pain ceases before the injury is fully truly healed the tissues are still recovering but the pain is already stopped mm. in acute pain in normal pain because the brain doesn't need to be telling you anymore that you've had a broken foot once you've been to the doctor put a cast on and so on and so forth mm. so the pain can stop then and you can just get on with your recovery because you're aware that there's an injury so you don't need more warning signal So why some people might then go on to develop pain that keeps going even though their injury has healed and others don't, it's not fully, truly understood. But in general, factors like high levels of stress, changes in movement and ongoing high levels of pain that have been unmanaged are the three main kind of risk factors for developing chronic pain. Yeah, right. And is is it always the case that there's like a nerve damage that's that's happened or is that... Something that you're shaking your head, no. <laughs> it's, vision, it's not visual medium. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, because certainly there are some conditions that it's nerve pain, but other conditions it's something different. Is that right? Yeah. So there are some conditions that are chronically painful that arise because nerves within the body, their peripheral nerves, that is, are damaged. But the most cases of chronic pain uh, the pain is actually arising from the central nervous system, How interesting. which is from the brain rather than from the tissues nor from the peripheral nerves. Yeah, right. So I'm um, jumping to like the role of psychology. Give us a rundown on like where psychology kind of gets involved. And in, I mean, I know it's a very big question. But. Well, the research tells us that psychology generally gets involved far too late. You're right. That it's almost like, you know, the last resort. These poor individuals who have more often than not, but not always had an injury, that injury has gone along, been incredibly painful, been incredibly debilitating and uh, emerged as a chronic pain condition, have seen all types of specialists who, as I mentioned before, may or may not understand the concept of chronic pain and may or may not be giving helpful or unhelpful messages to the individual with this suffering and then finally they're sent off for maybe a pain specialist pain clinic and given a diagnosis of chronic pain Mm. and finally they might get to see a psychologist at which point they're often thinking right so you think it's all in my head Mm. right so you think i'm making this up right so you think i'm crazy and uh, so that can be a bit of a barrier in terms of treatment well that's it i mean it's i think that's probably the number one i did a pain rotation in my course and that was sort of the one of the the first things that uh supervisor was like look this is what you're going to come up against and you need to have a response to that i mean you need to kind of be able to navigate your way as a clinician to sort of say well look actually we're not I'm not saying that it's all in your head you know what I want to mm. do with you is something different or what I can offer is something different to that mm. but I think like a lot of patients have had the experience where people medical people but family members friends work colleagues they've all kind of got, look it's just in your head you oh. should be over this by now yeah right you know your bones are healed or your cast is off or the delightful surgeon who says i did a great job your surgery was perfect everything is fine 
uh, you don't really need to have any more pain now. Yeah. <laughs> really unhelpful kinds of comments like this. And so those by implication is suggesting to the client that it is imaginary or make-believe or being putting it on. Mm. And as you said, family and friends who just don't understand if they've never had that experience themselves or their experience of pain has been acute pain, pain that goes away when the injury heals. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's a lot of that in the room when the client comes in into yep. the room and it is a, a little tricky to navigate. I think one of the first things about navigating that is that even for myself, never having experienced chronic pain is to get that idea that it isn't in their head, it is in the central nervous system. Yep. And that even that can be a struggle because sometimes I fall back to but I just, you know, don't understand yeah, yeah. how can, it, you know, it, I get that it really feels like pain and it really is pain. It's exactly the same. It's an electrical signal. There's no mm-hmm. difference. Mm-hmm. But I, when I see how debilitating it is, I find it hard to put two and two together when the injury has healed. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it's one of those difficult things, I think, in psychology where you sort of like cognitively understand it, but emotionally don't always understand it. Mm-hmm. But then you as a clinician have to to be a good clinician have to be able to kind of uh, actually connect with the emotion of the patient around it, that kind of things. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Do you find that there's a lot of defensiveness that goes on? I think within our pain management program, there can be some defensiveness, Mm -hmm. but as a general rule, they've been reasonably well socialised by the referring doctors who are pain specialists. And they've been reasonably well socialised through our process because we have processes around the way we triage and and enter patients into our program, as most pain programs do. But there certainly there can be defensiveness. Mm. And I think the multidisciplinary approach can help because you wouldn't be sending me to a physio as well if you really thought it was all in my head. So we kind of have that benefit of having that. Who's normally in a a multidisciplinary chronic pain team? As a minimum, it would be a physiotherapist, occupational therapist yep. and psychologist yep. and the best practice guidelines include those disciplines. As well um, as like a, is it anesthesiologist? Anesthesiologist. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible yeah. pronunciation. So uh, in an integrated pain program, yes, you'd have yeah. anesthesiologist uh, or a pain specialist yeah, yeah. and uh, like a rehabilitation physician or consultant. Yeah. In addition, you might have other disciplines as well. We have access to the whole range, including podiatry and social work, community integration and leisure. We have access to nursing staff and we have access to exercise physiologists mm. and things like that for the and allied health assistants to to work with the ongoing exercise programs and things like that yeah i mean just by the, just by you just describing that you can kind of get a sense of the way a chronic pain problem can touch all aspects of someone's life mm. and kind of be sort of profoundly disabling yeah and therefore that is where the bare minimum is the occupational therapy physiotherapy and, and psychology, psychology. Yeah where the occupational therapist is out there showing them different ways of doing everyday occupations around the house or caring for themselves because even self-care occupations can be affected by chronic pain. Yeah. Why does someone get referred to a psychologist 
in this kind of setting. So I mentioned the best practice guidelines say that psychology needs to be included as part of a treating team. So yeah. things like work cover and TAC won't fund pain management programs if they don't involve psychology, if they don't take a psychosocial, biopsychosocial approach. So that's the standard approach yeah, right. of treatment. And the reason for that is that the evidence shows that treatment modalities that are simply physical or simply medical are just not that effective so and that's understandable chronic pain by definition is something that's already gone on for a fairly long time managed well by the the normal model of care yeah yeah the purely medical model which would be medication as a solution for pain doesn't work so morphine-based drugs just simply don't work for these types of pain you can take them and they might make you feel a little better but they actually aren't going to reduce the pain and then you'll need more of the same drug to have the same yes it's it's, from my understanding you can correct me Mm -hmm. if you want but like medications are part of the solution not the solution nowadays they are very limited part of the solution oh interesting Um, right Particularly those opioid-based medications need to be less and less part of the solution. They became more a part of the solution, but they're actually becoming a bigger problem than than giving really a lot of benefit to folks at all. In what kind of way? Because of their ineffectiveness, but the fact that they make you feel better particularly well we we need to go back a step which was we were talking about the impact on everyday life and where psychology fits in having pain all of the time affects your sleep it affects your mood and Mm. it is incredibly stressful so these are some of the key more superficial ways in which psychologists might be involved But the consequence of that is just high levels of distress. You know, mm. people in pain are very distressed. They're, you know, not able to work. They're not able to do meaningful occupations. They're not able to fulfill their roles in life. Mm. You know, they're going to become more and more depressed, but demoralized and hopeless and helpless. Mm. Also, um, like, a, like anxious around kind of the pain flaring up, that kind of thing. Fear of movement. If I do X or Y, that's going to cause more pain and if you believe the old your old formulation of what pain is which is pain equals damage more pain means i'm really seriously damaging my bones Mm. or structures or tissues so a lot of fear there so you're going to avoid anything that creates pain because you'll be damaging your body if you have pain now we know that that's not the case that's the central problem um centralized problem the back brain is telling you there's something wrong when actually there isn't something wrong yeah so if you've got all these high levels of distress and someone gives you an opioid based medication you're going to feel better yeah it's not going to be touching the central pain problem it's actually just you are going to feel better from your distress leading to higher and higher levels of dependency on that medication Mm. to get by which subsequently leads to can potentially lead to death yeah right Um, because the dose is too high the doses go up and And also there's like the side effects of taking a lot of opioid medications you know and that that can be impactful for a whole lot of other reasons exactly yeah yeah is that a central challenge in doing therapy with people is like kind of trying to like as a first step trying to get get them to understand that a different model of thinking about pain and what that yeah 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 absolutely so the well i guess the first step is breaking down the barriers the defenses that we mentioned earlier and that is through kind of 
giving them basic education about the formulation of how this individual developed their chronic pain condition, uh, the risk factors that contributed, their high levels of stress, their unmanaged pain and the changes in movement that they've experienced um, personally, the impact and reflecting back to them that, yeah, I understand that this pain is not just pain. This pain is pain that affects every part of your life and right down to the core of who you are and your self-concept. Mm. and that then touching on those superficial things like sleep stress and mood and being able to jump in and start to give some symptomatic relief around those things and then moving into a greater and greater level of education about this model of pain which is an electrical signal and not different from the pain you had before and not different from the pain that I experience except for the chronicity and that it isn't a danger signal and that it has really, you know, ruined your life and we just want to get back some ground. Yeah, how interesting. And do you, like I was doing some reading and prep for this and sort of talked a lot about trying to build up like this shared formulation of what triggers pain, what doesn't trigger pain and kind of monitoring pain or kind of like trying to tease all these things out like how do you go about that or what's the approach there so it's actually a job that often are in our team our occupational therapist does so they'll be looking at um, monitoring activity and monitoring flare-ups of pain and physio as well to a lesser extent they often give the clients a pedometer because they're trying to encourage an increase in activity in a paced way Mm -hmm. Uh, so in that multidisciplinary setting that's how we approach it because I'm spending an awful lot of time letting them know that I believe them and that it's not all in their head and working on their stress and uh, anxiety and mood issues predominantly rather than their activity because I have the benefit of having someone who can work on activity (laughs) Um, but should I be in a private practice where I didn't wasn't working multidisciplinary that's what we would do we'd do an activity monitoring type over a couple of weeks which would include mood state sleep activity and pain levels so it would kind of have multiple levels of monitoring across the week yeah right what's the benefit of that all like it's uh it's Diagnostic is too strong a word, but it's around like, so let's have a look at what what you are doing. Everybody knows that uh, people's self-report is unreliable. So when clients say, I do everything or I do nothing, or there's nothing that triggers my pain, it just happens. It's there all of the time and it's the same all of the time. These are just our you know, observer biases, we're not really very good at being accurate. So using the monitoring to check in actually what is going on from day to day and then being able to work through that with the client and reflect back to them, oh, it's very interesting that on this day when you came in to see me or had several medical appointments on one day, the next night you had a really bad night's sleep and the next day you had a lot of pain Mm -hmm. and, you know, and then kind of noticing the patterns yeah because it reminds me a lot of like in drug and alcohol you would get people who would come and say oh i drink when i'm unhappy or i drink when i'm anxious but if you did like a a history over the week of the days that they drank you know you go oh you drank a lot on friday night what's happening on friday night oh well i saw my friends and and we did this stuff and i got caught up and blah blah blah, and i ended up drinking a lot and they're explanation that that like the wholesale explanation they have for Mm. what goes on doesn't match every instance and you know and and those moments I think can be quite insightful for people and you're not trying to catch someone out like you're trying to kind of 
actually like let's let's have a more detailed explanation and like let's just really try and understand it that kind of thing exactly exactly and I think it is it is informative to clients because for example a simple thing of I have pain all of the time well yeah I know you have pain all of the time but I'm wondering if there's some variation because once we see the variation then you have some hope actually that ah if my my Mm. pain changes without me trying maybe my pain could change with me trying some some of these strategies or we can see the relationship it's not just activity that flares up my pain it could also be that argument that I had with my husband that's flaring up my pain yeah right so how important is that hope piece to chronic pain work I've never kind of separated out how important it is in pain, but I think it's always important in psychology. Yeah, right. (laughs) It's universally important. Yeah, because I think like my limited clinical experience with chronic pain is like you sort of say, you know, they're they're frustrated, they're unhappy, they're anxious, you know, but like there's like a a hopelessness. Like I've been dealing with this for a really long time Mm. and, you know, why do I need to see you? You know, the patient's like, you know, you're just going to be another person that, on my list of people I've seen and you know, yeah. it can be interesting to try and get in there on that. Yeah. It was a qu- there was something that you you said in the previous thing which was like you said about pacing activity. Like talk a little bit about why that's important. Yes. I think people wouldn't quite always get that. Yeah, and it is absolutely essential. So I talked about one of the risk factors for developing pain is changes in movement. And what I mean by that is um, for some people their fear of pain leads to very low, low levels of activity or inactivity, high inactivity, not doing very much at all. For some people, they might say, well, blow it. I need to do X, Y, and Z, so I'm just going to do it um, despite the pain. And they're going to be doing a lot of activity, but they're going to have really super high levels of pain all of the time. Mm. High levels of pain all of the time continue to sensitize the sensitive system, this overactive pain system which I've mentioned is the centralized problem Uh, so that's the kind of changes the third and most common type is when I feel okay I will go hell for leather and I'll do as much as I can and then of course my pain will flare up and I'll be in bed for days I won't be able to do anything boom or bust is what I always say to my patients about boom or bust uh, overdoing underdoing cycle so pacing is the antidote for those three three conditions though it's the overdoing the underdoing or the boom bust uh, Mm -hmm. pattern Mm -hmm. pacing is finding the level of activity that you can do that doesn't cause a jump in your pain or an increase in your pain Mm -hmm. you've got pain all of the time I appreciate that so I can't do the amount of activity that won't cause any pain because you're in pain whether you do the activity or not but which level is okay for you to do that won't cause a flare-up of pain and we establish that collect a baseline by getting them to do the activity over a few different occasions measure the amount of time intuitively people often know like I know if I do this for 10 minutes I'm gonna end up really paying for it later on well do you know how you'd be if you only did it for five minutes how would that be so we kind of intuitively can make some guesses about what that baseline should look like test that theory out Mm. um, get them to test it and then say okay that's your baseline for 
washing the dishes or vacuuming the carpet or walking or doing whatever it is that you're aiming to do. And it tends to be activity specific and then we work towards generalization. So we collect that baseline data and then the idea of pacing up is to gradually over days and weeks is to build up. So today, tomorrow and the next day, I will only spend five minutes washing the dishes Mm. and if each and every day I'm able to do that successfully without flaring up my pain then in the subsequent days I might spend four minutes washing my dishes and then five minutes and so on it sounds so easy doesn't it but but then as what you're saying yeah like I can instantly think of like a whole lot of problems that you could encounter as a clinician or just as an individual if you are doing that, the, the things that kind of come to mind is like that, that initial sort of like anxiety and motivation. It's like, no, no, I've told you my pain flares up. I'm not going to do that. Or what's the point in me doing the dishes for five minutes? Where do you kind of go with that? So I guess it depends what the barrier is. Yeah. And when we introduce pacing depends on where the client is at. So if fear is a major barrier, we need to start with fear rather than pacing up. Like any exposure work, which is what pacing up really to a certain extent is as well as a desensitization process yeah we need to to be able to at least have relaxation in place we need to have some maybe some grounding techniques we need to have some alternative in place before confronting the feared activity Mm. Uh, if you're anxious and tense you're probably gonna and you try and do something you are either not going to do it well or your pain might be worse or something like because if you're tense then your pain's going to be worse or something yeah i can imagine yeah so we would be looking at which character we're dealing with are we dealing with the boom buster or are we dealing with the overdoer or the underdoer um so the underdoers like to be likely to be very fearful they're avoiding everything because they're very fearful so they would need a lot of reassurance and a lot of relaxation a lot of education before introducing increasing activity and then that activity would be the baselines would be really low Mm-hmm. And it would be something that they're already doing. I mean, these folks are coming into centre, so they're probably doing something already. They're yeah. sitting in a car or they're doing. They're getting dressed or having a shower. So we'd be looking at that kind of low level. It might be pacing, sitting in a chair. Oh, sitting in a chair is really painful and if I sit too long, it'll cause a flare-up. So then we're just looking at pacing, sitting in a chair and being able to sit in a chair for longer without having to get out of the chair or be really super uncomfortable and you can imagine like people are not very good at one of the problems i would imagine is people are not very good at the time even just knowing the time yeah or or they would have had experience where oh if i sit for 50 minutes or if i do this thing then at 50 minutes i'll start feeling the pain or something like that and i remember having a supervisor and she said oh that you know you might get a patient who Every time they walk around the block, they get to the house with the white picket fence and their pain starts. But if you get them to walk the other way, they can walk further before the pain starts because they don't have the, the cues from the environment that that pain system has kind of got sensitized to. Exactly. Yeah. So a lot of, yeah, a lot of reassurance. I mean, sitting in a chair is not a dangerous activity. Our body doesn't need us to, our brain shouldn't be telling us that it's dangerous, but that's what it's telling us when it sends a pain signal because we're sitting. So there's a lot of education. So that would be for your underdoer. For your overdoer, we might actually be like, you know, having to slow them down. And they're of course going to be resistant to that because you don't understand. I've got a family to run and I've got Mm. stuff to do. And I'm like, well, let's just mathematically map this out. When you do 
everything and end up three days in bed, how's that working out for you? (laughs) And you're in pain all of the time and needing to have a lot of medication or time off work or whatever it is. Is that working? Could we at least maybe try for a week this other way of doing things and see what happens? Let's just experiment with this and see what happens. But mathematically on paper, I can show you using this pacing strategy and pacing up, you will get to a, a higher level of productivity than you currently have mm. with with this kind of more boot and bust. Yeah, like because I mean I don't even have a I, I don't have a pain problem, and I but I know that when I get in a zone of working for whatever reason, oh you know I'm editing the podcast and oh, you know and this is going really well. It's very difficult to kind of go oh look it's probably late and I should go to bed and mm. otherwise it won't. And that's just a normal like a normal person you know the average person. You know what I mean? You're not normal. <laughs> I'm cutting that. I'm cutting that. Um, But yeah. Yes. So we would encourage, for example, the use of timers. Like it's just a simple practical thing. I do the same. I might be working at my computer and not really paying attention to the time and be sitting in a chair for really what is actually an unreasonable length of time in a non-ergonomic chair. So set the kitchen timer on the oven as I'm sitting in the kitchen doing this work at the kitchen table. And as the timer goes off, just get up. It doesn't have to be a massive break. Just get up and uh, walk around, maybe get a glass of water or whatever, and then you can go back to the activity. So, yeah, it's using a time or using other methods. So sometimes, for example, with washing dishes, it's not how long you spend, it's how many dishes. So just do the glasses first and then do the cups and so mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. and then do the plates and then do the pots last. Yeah, and as I mentioned, as a clinician, you, then, you have to really be have a really good understanding of their, that person's environment and, and the way they interact. Like you have to be quite a practical clinician to kind of really be able to kind of get those nuts and bolts. Yeah. 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 And I think that's probably why I like this area so much because I think by nature I'm just a pretty down-to-earth and practical person. Mm-hmm. So just being able to talk about practical strategies, you know, and practical ideas, but being real about it, like, yeah, of course you've got these kids or you've got these other demands on you. Of course we need to integrate those do, and do a lot you, of flexibility. Do you end up doing family work? Because I could imagine a patient changing what they do from – too much to mm. doing less could be problematic or or even the other way like you know you're disrupting family roles or things like that yeah we don't have as much of that as I would like in our group-based program we actually have a session where family and friends are invited to join and to understand the basic principles and ask questions and find out what's going on it's about midway through the group-based program because we're imagining at home changes are taking place and this can lead to changes in dynamics Mm -hmm. structure within a family but very rarely, <laughs> very rarely do people come to that session. How interesting. And sometimes there's a reluctance on the side of the client. They don't want their family members to come in. Then There might be some sense of shame or don't want to put any more burden on them. But at other times it's that the family members think, yeah, it's your problem. It's your medical condition. You deal with it. I'm, I'm done with it. Like I'm fed up with it. That kind mm, of thing. Mm. Yeah. So when it works, when you are able to bring someone in, it's very powerful. It's very helpful. And whether that's in the group or in the, in the individual session, but it is something that we do discuss as part of these, whatever the techniques are, relaxation or pacing or exercise, we're talking about how this might impact on the family. 
Yeah, and also like because people do what I think such such a terrible term, pain behaviours. You know that kind of if you're in pain, you might grimace or sigh or make a face or something like that, and then that can signal to other people to do stuff, and that can have this whole whole trigger chain of events. So then, if you're changing someone, but then the other person wants to kind of be like, "What's going on? Yeah. You can't you can't get up. Don't get up." Like yeah, you get in pain. That goes up. There are cer- there are certain families where we have been much more proactive about intervening because it may be the husband or other who is um, highly solicitous and really trying to help. They don't want their wife to suffer. She's suffered enough, yeah, and yeah. they've taken over a lot of duties, uh, and that's now become kind of part of their self concept. So yeah, to try to take that away can be complicated. Yeah, like, yeah if you've got a chronic pain problem of 10 plus years and your partner's been involved in that, then that partner has got an identity as a carer mm. and then along comes a psychologist and challenges it all. <laughs> like, yeah. The system's going to fight it, isn't it? Mm. Mm. Definitely, yeah. But interestingly, I mean, that d- can happen in other situations as well. That happens with stroke clients as well, that, you know, over-solicitous family members try to do more than they need to and can be getting in the way of recovery. Yeah, right. It's sort of interesting, like you would think that someone improving would be an easy run, but often it's actually, it's often very, very challenging for a family dynamic. Yeah. It's like, oh, this person is now doing more around the home and I have this all organized. Like, <laughs> like, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> We've talked a lot about sort of like the, I guess, the ins and outs of working with pain, increasing activity, changing that sort of self-concept and stuff. What about like the mood piece? What are the kind of common problems people present with or you think is interesting to kind of work with? Uh, In terms of mood? Yeah. Yeah. So I actually have a really uh, elegant diagram of the interaction between pain and Mm. stress slash anxiety slash frustration and anger and also low mood, which kind of shows the interaction so when we have pain it's stressful but stress increases pain okay stress increases pain by virtue of the release of cortisol plus what we mentioned before about increasing muscle tension you Mm. increase your muscle tension in your chest back shoulders and you've got a back pain you're going to be pulling on those kind of tight sore areas so that's the kind of most obvious way in which stress impacts on pain but the more subtle ways the increase in electrical signals that's what stress does stress increases electrical signals amps up the central nervous system amps up the central nervous system so if you have ms or if you have parkinson's if you have epilepsy or if you have chronic pain stress will increase the probability of symptoms yeah right which again says why psychology needs to be involved in pain because we need to dampen down that those overall uh, signals. So that's the kind of uh, the the lower loop, so to speak, pain increasing stress, stress increasing pain. And by just showing that diagram to the clients, it helps them to see a little bit where psychology fits in and and kind of helps to dispel that myth about you think it's all in my head you think it's make-believe so we know I'm talking about actual chemicals that are actually released by your brain every day and patients will never almost never deny that they're in stress that they're just that they're stressed angry frustrated yeah because it's probably the first thing they kind of 
they say, so you know, why am I here? I've got to deal with all this stuff. And mm. you, can, you can use that as a piece, can't you? Very easily. Then um, in terms of the kind of the upper loop, pain generally leads to lower mood. And it might do so through reduction in activity, but particularly enjoyable activity. Mm. The thing you do with what you've got is you clean the house. You don't go out and socialise because... <laughs> Yeah, you've got a back problem. You're not going to be socialising. You might still do what you absolutely positively have to do, mm. particularly if you're a boom buster, but you're probably not having a lot of fun. Yeah, because people don't, you know, if you've broken your leg, people can kind of see that. Like they can, you know, like I don't know what it would feel like to break my leg, but I kind of, I can imagine or I can see that it's difficult, you know, it's, or you can, even with cancer patients, you know, you, you can say, oh, that person's sick because they're on chemo and, you know, they don't look well and stuff like that. But like chronic pain patients is this invisible problem mm. in, in many respects mm. and makes socialising very difficult. And communicating about pain is difficult as well. So explaining to others about this chronic pain condition who kind of a bit fed up with you and they're a bit sick of you talking about your pain condition so socializing drops off hobbies and interests drops off your enjoyment drops off mm. lower mood is associated with lower endorphins and what do endorphins do for us they're, feel good. and they're also natural painkillers yeah, right. they're the strongest painkillers that we have they're the reason why morphine works in our bodies thanks to the endorphins because we have receptors for a reason yeah 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 so therefore the mood part of it is again to firstly express that and explain that and put that into that biological context to validate the client's experience and then give them some tools to what we can do which is then comes back to pacing up but let's you can pace up with washing your dishes if you want to, but I'd really prefer to see you pace up with you going out for coffee with your friends, yeah. which is where sitting in a seat might be important or going to the movies or yeah. going for a drive or going for a walk to the park or whatever else it is that you find enjoyable. Yeah, so I mean, I guess that having an understanding of what someone finds meaningful mm. might be a very important first piece of the puzzle and getting to know someone is that would that be right yeah yeah looking at what it is that that brings them brings them pleasure and you know finding a way to we increase to that, that yeah thing. yeah yeah and we also do cognitive restructuring so this is both for mood and stress okay. anger frustration all the those emotions that are contributing to the pain condition the maintenance of the pain condition we'll be doing some cognitive so restructuring for, so for people who don't know what that is like <laughs> non-psychologists that would be thinking differently in order to feel differently yep. so noticing what it is that you're thinking about a particular event or some experience that you're having mm. and noticing some of the faulty thinking that might be going on there the distortions that we naturally we all make everybody does it all mm. of the time about those events and then seeing if you can look at it differently in order to feel more calm or more neutral yeah like oh that'll be too difficult for me i'll be in i'll be i'll be in a lot of pain and then that would be perhaps what like going well you know look actually did that happen when we did that monitoring and and is that really always true yeah that kind of thing yeah or yeah. even if you do get in pain Maybe it's worthwhile going and doing this thing or something like that. Nevertheless, yeah, yeah. Or or simply, I'm, I hate this pain. I'm sick of this pain. This pain is killing me. I'm completely over it. It's never going to end and I, it's terrible and awful versus I'm getting better day by day. Now I've got some different tools. Now mm. I can manage. So a flare-up of pain can be managed differently 
cognitively. Mm, mm. Yeah, or even kind of taking that survivor approach of like, well, it's amazing that I've survived 10 years with this pain, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's so many other things we could say about it. Yeah, yeah. But then... But obviously, like, so challenging to kind of take that on board, I reckon. Yeah. And, and so from a technical point of view, we generally don't start with pain as the target of the changing the cognitions. Generally, we're looking at other things. So we're really talking about that argument that you had with your husband this morning and what, that, what your thoughts about that were and how you might think differently about that situation mm. in order to not be quite so furious and angry with him and therefore maybe feel more calm, which would lead to a reduction in the stress in your body. Yeah, right. And presumably to a better outcome because you're more patient and kind, you're not yelling and arguing mm. or withdrawing or whatever your less than helpful strategy might have been this morning. You can do it differently next time. Yeah, you're going to try and, I guess, I always think about it as like, where can you get a toehold as a clinician? Like, yeah. Yeah, you don't want to be... Don't want to be starting on the most difficult thing necessarily. Yeah. Suicidality, is that a problem in this population? It can be in some cases, in the extreme cases where the pain is very high and it continues to be debilitating, yeah. where efforts to improve the situation have failed. But actually more, I mean, in general, the average person who has chronic pain is capable of succeeding in a pain program there are some other barriers it might be the structure like for example that there are other forces at play which would be maintaining the problem it might be the over solicitous family member it might be secondary gain issue uh, compensation issue Mm. There might be some personality constructs which may or may not meet criteria for personality disorder that might also be contributing. Does it sort of interfere with management or something? The meaning itself of the pain. I've had one client for whom the pain seemed to become the new identity for them and their Without their pain, they wouldn't be able to do the things that they do, which was advocate for other patients with pain. And mm. and so it really became such a strong part of the identity that to give it up would be difficult. Challenging, kind of interesting. The issue around dependence, medic, medication dependence, opioid in particular dependence, and if the client is able to see, look, actually you're right, there's medication, I'm still in pain, I'm taking it bucket load of this medication and I'm still in pain maybe I need to look at this differently if they're able to make that shift great if they're not that is going to be a barrier to success of a program because being on those medications well basically yeah you're not able to really absorb the information you're not able to really was it like um, like, I think that's like it's like a single focus rather than a multi multi multi-faceted way of attacking the problem problem. that kind of stuff yeah and if it's not working already. Yeah. And so that rigidity in thinking and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So these are some these are kind of some of the challenges, I guess, in the in the work that yeah. you may have these factors at play that can yeah, that can really just be a sticking point and, and yeah. So one sort of perhaps final question I was I I'm always really fascinated about is we've talked uh, predominantly about working with the patient and occasionally working with the, with the family. But what's the role of the psychologist amongst the team? And like what kind of behind the scenes kind of stuff do psychologists do as part of a chronic pain program or team? 
Uh, so I think it, it again, it's driven by the client and the client need. So in, in our team, we're all on the same page. The occupational therapy, the physiotherapy, they're very psychologically minded. We're all talking the same language with mm-hmm. the, around the same model of pain. But for example, if we do have some of these other issues like personality constructs Mm -hmm. or like secondary gain issues that might be getting in the way of the client achieving their goals and making progress as otherwise expected the role of the psychologist might be to yeah work with the other clinicians just to keep informing them or reminding them of what they probably already know through their own experience with Mm. these group over many years and yeah and just to kind of guide the treatment approach maybe make slightly modifications and in the group we're often needing to work around group dynamics if group dynamics get a little out of kilter uh, sometimes they do sometimes they don't but when they do sometimes we need to kind of step in to work with the team or the group around the group dynamic yeah, um, right. and how to manage those issues. Yeah, I'm always, I always think it's a really interesting piece of the puzzle as a psychologist and as I've trained and then worked over many years that learning how to communicate effectively with other professionals and kind of to affect change to get, you know, get the treatment team to kind of treat a patient in a particular kind of way if I think that the team needs to do that. You know, I always think it's such, a, it's such an interesting piece that's perhaps not taught directly but I guess you kind of pick up over over time Mm. so I've worked the two biggest areas that I've worked is ABI rehab and pain management acquired brain injury rehabilitation and and in both settings the interdisciplinary the working together as a team approach is really important and understanding everybody else's language around those things is really important Mm. and these kinds of issues when they arise this the kind of the system how the system is impacting on the client the family and so on and so forth are kind of quite critical you're right you, nobody tells you anything about that at university and you learn by doing or making mistakes yeah. but again it's one of the reasons I'm really passionate the fact that I get to work with these really great other disciplines mm. and I learn I've learned so much and I've been doing this for 20 years and I've learned so much about physiology about yeah, how brains love, and bodies work yeah, yeah i love working in oncology because it's it's yeah you know i'm like every week i learn a new word <laughs> like, yeah. like what's that oh, yeah um, so it, it is it's it's great i wouldn't would never want to work in a private practice all by myself i love being part of a team and working with them and so i guess th- having worked in multiple pain programs in each and every one we really did seem to have a good cohesion and, and good everybody working on the same page and and in the acquired brain injury sector as well more or less but part of the role of psychology goes beyond that because I work in a hospital where there are many people who are not pain specialists and are not part of a pain program and so there's a lot of information to give those folks as well about what they can do at the acute end Mm. to um, minimize the risk of developing chronic pain in their clients and yeah, so working across the disciplines, across the spectrum from acute to outpatients because we're at an outpatient clinic, obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So a lot of in-service. In the time I've been at this hospital where I presently am, I have 
done multiple grand round presentations. All of them were multidisciplinary mm. and not all of them were on pain, but many of them were on pain, plus in services within my outpatient department and for physiotherapy department, for psychology department, mm. because not all of my colleagues know yeah. about pain. And, you know, is there, and there's that kind of like, it, it's really one of the problems that you get in psychology that it's about, this working with chronic pain is really about the mindset and then once you get that mindset mm. then everything kind of flows from that yes you know and yeah and so it's that they kind of you constantly have to uh refresh people around that and stuff yeah and because it is challenging even as i said having worked in this area for a really long time even i sometimes get tripped up and i'm trying to explain it to a client and they're they're asking me questions i'm like yeah i know doesn't make any sense does it (laughs) but it it is this this is what it is even though it doesn't make any sense like well why me or why why would a body do that why would it why would it do that and we don't know well uh why don't we leave it there uh that was really really great well we'll take a quick break and we'll come back with Things we came across. Okay. You're listening to Two Shrinks Pod. In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects. That... So Kathleen and I are having a break. She's refused water, refused any kind of... <laughs> Beverage. Beverage. Uh, so this is just a part of the show where I like to say thanks for listening. And if you do like the show, please rate, review the show on wherever it is. Kathleen, you're still learning how to use podcasts. Is that right? That's what you disclosed? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I am 50% of the way to understanding how the hell it works. <laughs> so you can listen to us um, through our website or through Apple Podcasts or through Stitcher or through a whole lot of other ways. And rating, review the show is also really good. Or if you like the show, please... Tell someone about it. Word of mouth, I think, is the best way to go about it. So, well, should we... Let's go back to things we came across. Yeah. You're listening to Two Shrinks Pod. So, things we came across, if you're not listening to this podcast before, is a segment of the show where we talk about something that We've come across in our day-to-day life or our research life, our clinical life, that we, you, you know, you're doing a literature search on something and then you see an article that's far more interesting. But you never get time to read it, so there's time to talk about it. Yeah. So, so I, uh, I wanted to talk about an article I read many, many years ago. It's by Lim Hellard and Aitken uh, and it's published in the Christmas edition of the British Medical Journal in 2005. So as a leader, you would have, you've worked in public health a long time. Mm. Tell me about your tea room, uh, <laughs> tea room experiences. Well stocked? Um, well, it's a strange thing that there, is, there's, there always seems to be an imbalance in yes. the cutlery. That is to say you might have seven forks but only one knife Yes. or vice versa. And I'm yet to understand how that happens. Well, yeah, my current problem at the moment is there's no sharp knives. And I was trying to cut an orange and it was just, it was blood orange. I was wearing a white shirt. It was... Disaster. Well, look, we got through in the end. But so, so this paper is The Case of the Disappearing Teaspoons. It's a longitudinal cohort study of the displacement of teaspoons in an Australian research institute. So it was actually done at the Centre for Epidemiology and Population Health Research, and it's the McFarlane Burnett Institute for Medical Research. 
That's in Melbourne. So... So I can just interrupt Brooke momentarily. Yes, the reason that I've read this article is because I have a lot of good mates who work at the Burnett Institute. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the authors of this paper per se, but uh, the data on which it is based is entirely valid. That's it. So let's set the scene. It's summer, January 2004, and uh, they found the tea room bereft uh, of teaspoons. So one of the... Uh, one of the authors of the study was dispatched to get some replacements and then the, these teaspoons then disappeared within a few months. So they were unable to stir their coffee, unable to, you know, uh, serve up their instant coffee and their sugar, that kind of stuff. And so being epidemiologists, they decided to study the phenomena. So <laughs> they did a literature search. It not surprisingly revealed nothing about the phenomenon of teaspoon loss. And uh, so they, their research question was, quote, where have all the bloody teaspoons gone? So multi-aimed thing. They, one, wanted to determine the overall rate of teaspoon loss, the half-life of teaspoons in the Institute, whether teaspoons placed in communal tea rooms were lost at a different rate and whether better quality teaspoons were more highly valued and therefore maybe disappeared more quickly, that kind of stuff. So they did a pilot study, which I thought was great. And then they did the main study. They purchased 54 stainless steel teaspoons and 16 other teaspoons of high quality. They distributed them across the centre, stratified by spoon type. And then they carried out counts uh, of teaspoons weekly for two months and then fortnightly for a further three months. So... They have a very pretty graph. Look at that graph. That's yeah. Just <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they did like a survival, I think this is survival analysis, I'm not sure. So results, 80% of the teaspoons had disappeared at five months. So they calculated the half-life was of the teaspoons was 81 days. So that's half had disappeared permanently after that time. Half-life for communal tea rooms was 42 days and... 77 days for program-linked rooms. I'm not sure exactly what the difference is. Anyway, so the, the loss of higher-quality teaspoons was not different to standard-quality teaspoons. So it just doesn't matter. Just mm. buy, buy, buy normal ones or buy high-quality ones. You're just going to lose them, whatever. <laughs> they did some, some absolutely fabulous calculations. I'm not going to go through all of them. But the rate of teaspoon loss was 0.99 per 100 teaspoon days. And then they worked out that to maintain a workable population, so one spoon for every two persons, the, uh, 252.4 teaspoons would need to be purchased every year. Then they then calculated that in Melbourne, where there's a workforce of about 2.5 million, that an estimated 18 million teaspoons would be going missing in Melbourne if this was a representative sample. This would be the entire co cover the entire coastland of Mozambique, about 2,700 k's and would weigh approximately the same weight of four adult blue whales. So 360 tonnes. <laughs> You're looking at me aghast. Well, the biggest question I'm still wondering yes. is where are they? Well, they have, the, author, the authors have some, uh, some thoughts on that. The first one, they talk about the tragedy of commons. So this, the tragedy of the commons, which is sort of... The, it comes from like if graze, like people grazing land uh, on, on sort of local land and every herder just like let's say cattle do it then eventually the local land gets uh, eaten away and then everyone no one can Christ. graze um so they thought that maybe that that's kind of uh as more and more teaspoon users make the same decision to take a teaspoon the teaspoon commons is eventually destroyed mm. end quote <laughs> my favorite one was sort of uh with a nod to douglas adams of hitchhiker's you'd be hitchhiker's guy yeah. yeah yeah so they talked about well maybe that there's a planet 
entirely given over to spoon life forms and unintended teaspoons would make their way to this planet, slipping their way through to through space to a world where they enjoy a uniquely spoonoid lifestyle, responding to highly spoon-orientated stimuli and generally leading the spoon equivalent of a good life. So you like that one the best? Yeah. <laughs> and then that talked about resistalentialism. Which is the belief, you're just laughing at me. There is the belief that inanimate objects have a natural antipathy towards humans, and therefore it's not people that control things, but the things that increasingly control people. And so saying, well, maybe the teaspoons, that's what they were doing. They're resisting being used that's for coffee. It, that's it. So, uh, so they sort of suggest that, just to conclude, that the rapid rate of teaspoon loss shows their availability. And, uh, and therefore office life is under constant assault. Teaspoon displacement and loss leads to the use of forks, knives and my favourite staplers to measure our <laughs> coffee and sugar. Could you stir it? I'm not, no. not going to ask you if it's too personal. And, uh, you know, this is linked to reduced employment satisfaction, lost production, lost, productivity, lost time, productivity, yeah. you know, and cost. <laughs> Despite despite their teaspoon loss, I can say that the folks at Burnett Institute are working hard in general, in general. <laughs> and making a, a big difference. They, no, they definitely <laughs> They're are. very productive. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming on the show. So if you did uh, like the show, please remember to rate, review the show, or follow us on Twitter, or send us an email. You've been listening to Two Shrinks Pod. Thanks, Kathleen. My pleasure. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. But as we try to widen and make more consistent our description of what we see, as it gets wider and wider and we see a greater range of phenomena, the explanations become what we call laws instead of simple explanations.